Welcome to the Ramble Room, a very special Veterans Day edition of the Ramble Room. For some time, I've been wanting to bring this to you. One of the first people that I ever met in life, literally he was at the hospital when I was born, was a gentleman by the name of Robert G. Walkinshaw. He, friends knew him as Bob, and, and later in life he was known as Old Bob. Now, he was a distant cousin of my dad's through marriage. My entire life, Bob was there. He was a constant friend for about 60 years. He was a mentor. He was an excellent storyteller, and I have many, many fond memories. When uh, I was very young, we used to go out a lot with him. He had a ranch up out of Casper, and we'd go out there, and it felt like every time we ever went anywhere with old Bob, we got stuck. He said something one time about the, the, the funny thing about getting stuck is that every time you see a situation, it looks just enough different that you don't really recognize it until it's too late. Whatever. I can remember walking out of many places. Bob's son, Willie, talks about being somewhere way up in the Shirley Rims when they got stuck. Fortunately, I was too young to be on that trip, and they walked some 35 miles to get out of there. <laughs> Being with Bob was always an adventure. Now, during World War II, Bob was a member of the 14th Air Force, and this is essentially his retelling the, the history of those experiences. Some of you, if you're old enough, will remember a television show called Baba Black Sheep. And that show featured a character whose name was Pappy Boyington. Pappy Boyington was actually somebody that had washed out of the 14th Air Force, hence the Black Sheep Squadron that he led. The 14th Air Force is most commonly known as the Flying Tigers. And during World War II, they flew the hump, flying supplies in and out of China and moving Chinese troops around the theater there trying to fight off the Japanese aggression in that area. In later years, Bob went to work for Casper College, and he was uh, in charge of the physical, he, he called it the physical plant, but anything that had to do with any of the buildings or the grounds around Casper College, Bob was in charge of. He shared an office with Bill Bragg, and some of you may have read or even been taught by Bill Bragg. He was a historian and an author specialized in uh, Wyoming history. And I used to go up there as a young man uh, in my late teens and early 20s and sit in their office and just listen to the two of them tell stories. It was, it was amazing fun, and it was a, a wonderful opportunity to get to learn so much about this wonderful state that I love. Later on, Bob moved over to the Sundance area lived well into his 90s. This was recorded not too long before his death, a couple of years back. Bob, late in his 90s, was still taking care of bulls during the winter for various ranchers around the area. He was a man of great vigor, of great character, someone that I will always admire. And I look forward to you being able to hear some of the stories that he has to share. This part one that I'm going to share with you is the history of the Flying Tigers, the 14th Air Force. And then we'll go into some, he does some 
personal stories about what he experienced and other things, and we'll look forward to hearing the rest of that. For now, though, I ask you to enjoy The History of the Flying Tigers by Robert G. Walkinshaw. Well, when you think of the 14th Air Force and the Flying Tigers in China, most people think of the P-40, Curtis P-40. Now this one is not marked with the U.S. Air Force emblem. This is the Chinese Air Force 12-pointed star. And uh, quite a few of the airplanes in China were marked with Chinese Air Force markings because we worked very closely with the Chinese Air Force. Now, I didn't have anything much to do with these. I flew basically this one, which is the DC-3 airliner. The, the uh, military called it the C-47. And the main difference was this one had a couple of large doors instead of a small passenger door on the side. And the seats were removed to make it a cargo hauler. Now we hauled a lot of passengers too, but we didn't have seats for them. It straddled about 28 or 30 Chinese troops down the middle of the floor. And they'd sit on the floor with their legs spread out and then one right behind the other. <laughs> oh, God. So we did haul a lot of passengers. Yeah. Now I've got a, an outline here that I'd like to pass out. And I'll try to follow the outline so I don't get too far afield. Thank you. And I'm reminded of what Daddy Warbucks and Little Orphan Annie said in their adventures in the comic strip years ago when they would relate each other their adventures since they'd last met. And they said it was a long story, only half true. <laughs> I think you'll find that may be my presentation too. <laughs> now up here I've got some maps. Can everybody see the... No. Yeah. That's the world map and that's the old flat world map. As you probably know, it's a really a globe, a circle. But it won't do any good to look on the back side because we've got it all on the front here. <laughs> I've marked on it, and you may want to look at it later. When I started out here at Casper, Wyoming, and then my travels to Gibraltar, through the Mediterranean, Suez Canal, Red Sea, across the Indian Ocean, across India, up to the Hump, the Himalayan mountains are right along in here. And then across them to Kunming, China, which is right there. And then from Shanghai, at the end of the war, across the Pacific to Hawaii, and back to Seattle. And eventually ended up back in Casper. So the main part of my adventure was a trip clear around the world. <laughs> and. Uh, there wasn't much flying on that one. We crossed the Atlantic in a troop ship. This was a big one. It carried a 
tremendous number of troops. And we did not have an escort. And this was in uh, late 1944. We, we stopped in Gibraltar. I've got this, I think, all on, uh, in the uh, outline there for you. We stopped in Gibraltar for two or three days, but we weren't allowed off the ship. We had to stay on the ship. And you didn't get much sleep because every half hour or so during the night, they set off a depth charge. And that was to keep communists from swimming out to the ships from Spain and attacking explosives. Then we went across the Mediterranean to Alexandria, Egypt, and spent a day or two there. And the main thing I remembered about that was they took the garbage off and put it on a big flat barge. And the little native kids all swam out to the barge and went through all the garbage to look for something to eat. And we crossed the Indian Ocean. Again, we had no escort. The commander of our boat, which was the General Mann, USS General Mann, he, he said that his boat was fast enough to outrun anything that he was liable to encounter. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he had some firepower on the troop ship, but uh, they kept wanting us to, to go in convoy. And the British threatened to shoot us there in the... Uh, Red Sea because they wanted us to wait for a convoy from Aden to Bombay. But we didn't. We finally just went on anyway. <laughs> and they didn't shoot us. <laughs> <laughs> when we got to Calcutta, or to Bombay rather, they put us on a train and we went clear across India, the interior of India by train. And that took a couple or three days too. I don't remember too much about that, except that every time you'd stop, there were a lot of salesmen collecting along the tracks, trying to sell you all of their junk. And when we got to uh, Calcutta, we went to a military camp called Kanchapara, and we spent several days there, maybe as long as a week. And this was because the air transportation from there on into China over the hump was very critical and a lot of war supplies went over by air and they, we had to wait until we had room and a priority to get over the hump by air. Then from Calcutta we went into Kunming and then I spent from December 44 to December 45 flying the interior of China. Now that would have been basically this area right in here. This map is China, and as you can see, it's a considerably bigger country than the map it would, or the, than where we flew indicated. The Japanese controlled all of the coastline and cleared out in here and most of Burma. The communist Chinese were up here in the northern end. And then when we got ready to come home at the end of the war, December 45, we had to uh, wait in uh, Shanghai for transport home. And that ended up to be rather interesting because we came home on the USS Macon Island, which was a baby 
aircraft carrier. During the war, we were so short on aircraft carriers that they took some of the troop ships and took everything off the top and made a flat top there so they could fly airplanes on and off. Of course, they had taken all the airplanes off for that trip back to the U.S. But that thing was really top-heavy, and when you got into heavy seas, it really rolled. And that was quite an experience to worry about that one going under. <laughs> it seemed like it was going to turn turtle at any time. It would list so far that my, my little room was an old gun pit on the side. And when they'd get that roll clear over, you could almost reach the water from the railing. And some of the boys spent a lot of the time up in the command post, the wheelhouse, watching the list meter. They were sure it was going to roll. <laughs> we finally got into Seattle and were assigned to Camp Lewis, which was a large Air Force Bay or a large Army base and the 14th Air Force was then disbanded. Now, the 14th Air Force is uh, still a numbered Air Force and it still has been reactivated and is still active. It's now at uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. And they have a lot of satellite bases all over the world because they're now in charge of all the satellites and missiles. They keep track of the ones we shoot, the ones other people shoot, and they keep track of all the naviga navigation satellites. And uh, I haven't kept up too much on it in the last few years. <coughs> Peterson Air Force Base is one of their satellites. I think Cheyenne uh, Warren Air Force Base is also a satellite because they have missiles there and some scattered clear over here into this country. I don't know exactly where they are, but uh, they're in charge of all of that stuff. It's the Satellite Air Force now. Now, I'm no longer familiar with uh, who's in charge, but I've got a handout here somewhere that I want to give you a little history of the 14th Air Force. Now, on the outline that I gave you, we're down to number two there, flying in China, assigned to the 14th Air Force also known as the Flying Tigers. And to start with, at the top of the sheet we just passed out, you can see American Volunteer Group, or AVG. And that was from September of 41 to July of 42. And the AVG was started when uh, General Chenault, a U.S. general who was retired from our Air Force, was, to, was contracted by the Chinese government to train the Chinese Air Force. And uh, they weren't very proficient, and they didn't have very good equipment, so he came up with the idea of getting the Chinese government and the American government to agree to a mercenary group. And these mercenaries were U.S. Air Force 
It was called the Air Corps, by the way, at that time. Uh, they were Air Force pilots and personnel who were allowed to resign and volunteer to go to China. And of course, there was a lot of ground personnel, mechanics and radio people, <coughs> and support people also. But they were all originally Air Corps people, and they were under contract with the Chinese government as mercenaries. And they engaged the Japanese starting right after Pearl Harbor over in, in uh, Burma and around Calcutta. So they were in it early. And then a little later, if you go down the big uh, chart, the American Volunteer Group became the China Air Task Force. That's in the upper left corner there. China Air Task Force was when the U.S. military, the Air Corps, Army Air Corps, took over the operation of the AVG. Now there's an interesting story there. There was a, a general in charge of the 10th Air Force in India. His name was General Bissell. He and Chenault had tangled years ago when they were both younger officers in the Air Corps. So they did not get along very well. He was a, a problem all the time we were in China. But he, then from the China Air Task Force, the 14th Air Force was born in March of 43. And then, as I had already told you, it was deactivated in December of 45, or actually uh, January of 46, at Seattle. Now, my assignment in China was to do the 14th Air Force, but the squadron assignment was the 14th Transport Section. In the upper right corner of that double sheet, I have circled in red the 14th transport section. By the time I got there, in late 44, the name had been changed. So if you go down to the about center bottom there, you'll see 322nd Troop Carrier Squadron is highlighted in red. So that was what they changed the name of the 14th transport section to 322nd Troop Carrier. And we were known as 322nd Troop Carrier for the rest of the war. Now after the war was over in uh, about August of 45, the 14th Air Force started to come home, but they left us there. And they reassigned us on detached service to the 10th Air Force and we were left in China until December to move Chinese troops into the areas that had been occupied by the Japanese. And uh, we had to stay there until we got those all hauled. Now, we took those from uh, Hankow, China, and Peking, the present capital, is way up north. 
I've got a mark on there, I think it shows an arrow going on north. So this is where we were hauling the Chinese troops to occupy northern China, which incidentally, and I had mentioned this already, was occupied by the Chinese communists. And they took a dim view of us bringing nationalist troops into their territory. They wanted to take it off. So we had Japanese troops who had surrendered, were still armed, and they were <coughs> guarding our airplanes and our operation wow. at Peking from the Chinese communists. So it kind of got confusing. You weren't sure who was your friend and who wasn't. <laughs> While in the 14th transport and later the 322nd troop carrier, most of our flying in China was down in this area here. Occasionally we would get up north, up into some of these bases, and very seldom did we have any missions up into the communist area or Tibet, which was up in here. Once in a while, I never did get on any of those. Chick Yang was our main <coughs> base, right about there or Kunming was our headquarters, and most of our flying men was from Kunming to Chikyang. And then Chikyang was a refueling stop. And from there we took supplies out to all these other bases in this area. Because these boys didn't fly until we brought them gasoline. <laughs> and bombs and ammunition. And they would work out of these other little small bases that are, that are listed there on your map until they got to irritating the Japanese. Then the Japanese would move in and capture those bases. We'd have to fly in and evacuate all the personnel and as much of the equipment as we could from there. Some of the bases that I went into frequently were Sichuan, Kanzhou, Namyung, Changting. Those are down in, in this area. Now the Japanese not only had the coastal area in Burma, but while I was there, they started out up in here and came down the railroad. There was a major railroad. Came right down here and split China in two. So they got some of these bases. They came very close to getting Chikyang. But they did get those eastern bases back in here. Those all had to be evacuated. And we had the 20th Air Force in China at that time, too. They were flying the B-29 Superfort. And their area was up in here. There's a little area on your map there. And they had about three or four airfields up in that area. Now, we did not have to supply them. They did their own supply with their B-29s. Chongqing, which is right along in here, it's kind of hard to see Chongqing there. That was the wartime capital. Originally the capital was in Peking, but during the war, of course, the Japanese held Peking. So the capital was moved to Chongqing. Interesting place too. There were two airfields there. One was down in the bottom of the river, 
and uh, we we didn't go in there. That was too tough. Uh, just the experienced airline pilots and some of the more senior Air, Air Force pilots flew into that one because you had to drop down into this real steep, deep canyon, but like our Grand Canyon, and land on a sandbar in the bottom of it. And then to get up to the city, there was something like 70 or 100 steps that you had to climb up to get to town. Now, when the, when the war was almost over, I was stationed at Liangshan and flying out of there temporarily. I got up to Sion, uh, and that's marked Sion's way up top there, too. There's a little green arrow in the word Sion at the top of your map, upper left. And Sion is the area where the terracotta warriors were unearthed quite a few years later. Of course, we didn't get to see them, and we didn't have shovels with us. <laughs> <laughs> On the top of page two of your outline, that word Mency is misspelled, but uh, anyway, that's down near the Burma border. Uh, this would be a typical mission in China, and quite a few of them were kind of memorable, and you remember them vividly. This one started out from Kunming, when I was taxiing out in the C-47 with a, a major, a U.S. Army major, and a radio operator with a bunch of radio equipment aboard, and it was a secret mission. We had sealed orders. This major had the orders of where we were going in an envelope, and we were not allowed to open that envelope until after we had taken off and were in the air. That makes for real good planning. <laughs> Don, Don, and Gib could appreciate that. Well, we flew down to that base, and the letter said to beware that nobody had been in there for a long time. The old ABG had used that base when they were working down in Burma and over toward Calcutta. So nobody had been in there for a long time, and it was just a great, huge, open grass field. So we flew down there, found it, and landed okay, offloaded the radio operator, who was going down to work with the Chinese Army, and he was to be their communications link with headquarters. I started to taxi the C-47 back to take off, and. I don't know if you other two fellows were taught that you use all the runway available for takeoff. So I went as far as I thought I could go on this little grass field, figuring I'd need all the room I could possibly get for the takeoff. Wasn't a very big field. I got harder and harder to keep that airplane moving on the ground. And finally, it just tipped up like this. <laughs> the wheels were stuck in the mud. <laughs> and I remember the uh, lieutenant, I can't say his name, I've got that problem, I come right up to the name and then I can't say it. But he was a pilot in our squadron. He came running out to the airplane and stopped us. And he said, where are you going? I'm talking to him through the window here. 
He says, we don't know. <laughs> he says, I want to go with you. Is it Paramore? No. no. <laughs> Sherman. Okay, Sherman. This was, this was a Lieutenant Sherman, a great-great-grandson of the Sherman of the Civil War. It seemed that he had been back at Chickyang and out behind the control tower at the Chickyang airfield was a big crock of water sunk in the ground with a cap on it and a tin cup on a chain so you could go out there and get a cool drink of water because you really had to be careful of all the water in China. It was all potentially contaminated. We were taught to, when we wanted a drink of water, if we had to deal with the Chinese, we asked for Ling Kaishui. That was cooled, boiled water that had to be boiled before you could drink it. So this crock of water had been prepared for the American personnel flying in and out of there. Sherman had gone back there and found a Chinese fellow drinking out of the tin cup. <laughs> and he pointed to the sign in Chinese, and the Chinese just told him to get lost. <laughs> so Sherman hauled off and busted him right in the face and knocked him down. Well, it turned out he was a colonel in the Chinese army. <laughs> so they were looking for Sherman. <laughs> he caught a ride back to Kunming. And we were just taxiing out, and he wanted to know where we were going. We didn't know. That suited him fine. <laughs> so he got aboard with us. <laughs> we got down there to that Mency field on the border of Burma got the airplane stuck and he was even happier because it meant he would be stuck there with us for <laughs> till everybody forgot about his problem. Yeah. <laughs> and they, uh, the Chinese then offered us a place to stay all night. They had some benches and they strung these benches out in a big room. It was probably as big as this room. And then they put some old pads with straw in them, rice straw, I presume, for a bed. And while they were fixing that, the open ceiling had rafter, open beams and rafters. And we could see the big rats running back oh, and forth oh, on them. Gosh. So we told them, we thought maybe we better go back and sleep in the airplane. And uh, we didn't stay with them. However, they did supply us with food. And they did a real nice job. Of course, we didn't watch it prepared. And we'll get on, on a, a story about that later. But uh, it looked like pretty good food, and we ate it. <laughs> and finally, uh, when that airplane tipped up, the radio operator, who sat back in about here, got up out of his seat and ran up the, the floor uphill and jumped out the side door here and broke his ankle because he was way up in the air when he jumped. So they flew a, a little beach craft down the next day to pick him up and take him back to the hospital. But the rest of us had to stay until we got the airplane out and flew it out. Now, I mentioned the fact that <clears throat> I mentioned it too the family, maybe I didn't say anything about it here yet, 
when we were flying in China, back in all that airspace, we did not file flight plans. Nothing the Japanese would have liked better would have been to get a hold of a big stack of flight plans. <laughs> so you were on your own. And of course you had altitude separation flying east and west. But uh, as far as I know, we never had any mid-air collisions, although that's kind of, of uh, amazing considering the amount of flying we did and the number of airplanes. A lot of it was instrument weather. Our, our main protection from the Japanese Air Force was instrument flying. This was before radar and before some of the more sophisticated navigation systems. And uh, fighter pilots, by and large, Japanese <coughs> and ours, did not like flying instruments. So if we could find a cloud and hide in a cloud, they'd go away and leave us alone. <laughs> and eventually then, the Air Transport Command, which was a separate organization altogether, was not associated with the 14th Air Force or the 10th Air Force in India. They are the ones that flew the hump. And when you talk about the hump route, the hump flying, that was mostly all Air Transport Command, ATC for short. We called them allergic to combat. <laughs> and the reason for that was that they'd fly way up north from Calcutta to the Himalaya Mountains, and then they'd go across those mountains to Kunming, China. The minimum altitude for safe passage there was 18,000 feet, which means they had to be on oxygen. Well, we never had any oxygen the whole time I was in China. And the highest mission I ever flew was at 20,000 without oxygen. The radio operator passed out, and I got to where everything was double. <laughs> All the instruments were double. But uh, the direct route across Burma from Calcutta to Kunming, China could be flown at 7,500 feet. Now that's just a little bit above where we are. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to go up to 18,000. The reason Air Transport Command wouldn't fly over Burma was because those Burma jungles were full of Japanese. You may remember, if you followed any of that World War II history, that Vinegar Joe Stillwell was in charge of the fighting in Burma, and the Japanese ran him out of China, or out of Burma. So there was lots of, of uh, Japanese down in there, and ATC didn't want anything to do with them. So they went way up north, high altitude, across those largely uncharted mountains, and that route was called the Aluminum Trail because they left airplanes smeared on those mountains all the way. Now after, after the war was over and we stayed in Hankow and, and moved the Chinese troops up into the communist areas, eventually got the aircraft, the baby aircraft carrier home to uh, Seattle. We were no longer in contact with any of the people or the, the Air Force. Some of us stayed in the reserve. I came back to Wyoming and uh, 
One time, looking through a magazine, I saw where there was a reunion of the 14th Air Force at Tucson, Arizona. That's about 1958 or long in there somewhere. So I said to Janet, we've got to go to that. And we did. We flew down to Tucson. And it was a really a nice meeting. But the only other person from my squadron, well, there were two guys there. One I didn't know in China. The other one was a fellow pilot. And I told Janet after the convention that our unit was too good a unit to not have a better representation at these conventions. So I did have two or three addresses of fellows that I kind of wanted to keep in touch with, and I'd hear from them occasionally. And I wrote to them and told them about the convention. They didn't know about it either. And eventually, we had the whole squadron uh, informed about these conventions. And it got to where they held a convention every year in a different place in the United States. And we went to most of them. Now they also had every year at Arlington Cemetery at Washington, D.C., a memorial service for all of the 14th Air Force people who had passed away in the last year. This, this association 14th Air Force Association was really good about keeping in contact with all of the members of people who would, would uh, sign up in the association. And so uh, it got to where I had at one time 165 people on my mailing list. And when we'd go to a convention, our squadron would have the most people of any squadron of the 14th Air Force in attendance there. We'd have maybe 20 or 30 people out of that, that bunch. Now people ask me, how many people were in your squadron? Well, that's a number you can't tell because over those years in early 1940s, they came and went, you know. They'd come in, they'd fly their missions, They'd come home and another group of pilots had come in and fly missions and go home. So it varied a lot. Then when, when the war was over and we went to Hancow to move those troops, they sent us all kinds of people. We had people everywhere. All kinds of them. I don't know how many. I would guess maybe several hundred. And that brings up another story when we were at Hankow, was the closest I ever came to getting killed, I guess. Uh, I kept telling our boys uh, in, in my squadron how lucky we were to have been sent to China, that we could have been killed in any, any other theater, Europe, Italy, North Africa, South Pacific. Because our flying was reasonably safe. Like I said, we hid in the clouds most of the time. <laughs> and the Japanese were pretty well under control by the other the fighter squadrons and the bomber squadrons. Hankow, where we were flying the Chinese troops. We were staying in uh, some large aircraft hangars, great big ones. We had bunks set up in the hangars and slept in there. And this had been a Japanese-held base 
when the war was on. And the mess hall was in one of the hangars. And I had gone down to the mess hall for lunch one day and came out. As I came out, I walked over to the next adjoining hangar and there was a Chinaman there selling nuts. So I stopped to dicker with him for a few nuts. And while I was talking to him, looking back between these two big hangars, the mess hall and the one that some of our troops were uh, sleeping in, I saw a great huge flash of fire back behind the mess hall hangar. And the thought I had at the moment was, some cook has blown up a gasoline <laughs> stove because they did their cooking on gasoline stoves. And I was just sure that's what had happened. They'd blown up a stove. But that was just a second or two before this shock wave hit those hangers that just rippled them. And the whole the whole thing, they were big sheet metal, and the whole hangar just sh shook. And I turned around and ran across the runway to where I knew there was a foxhole or a Japanese gun emplacement. It was a hole in the ground anyway. And I jumped into that. And on the way over there, I remember a tree stump, a great big one, great huge one, with all the roots sticking out, sailed over my head, and it was slow motion going in the rim. I could have almost touched it. And that was really the closest call I think I had during the war, or shortly after the war. I got down in the bottom of that hole, and about four or five of the fellows who were sleeping in that hangar next to the mess hall came in and jumped in on top of me with their big GI shoes. I was unhappy to have that extra layer on top because there was streaks of smoke and whatnot going overhead. It turned out that an ammunition dump behind that hangar had blown up. It wasn't a stove at all. And they figured, always figured that was probably communist Chinese sabotage. There was a, a couple of fellows killed that were driving by it in a Jeep when it went off. But that was about the closest call I can recall having. Now another time we had a kind of a, I guess it was a close call, when I got back to the barracks in Kunming, I didn't have any roommates. They had all bailed out. We had gone from Kunming up to Chikyang and back to these eastern bases right in through here. And that was in January of 1944, 4-5, early 45. And that was an eight-hour flight from Kunming to Chikyang and back into these bases. So we'd fill up with whatever gas we could there. They didn't have much because we'd hold it all in there. And back to Chikyang, Land at Chikyang, top the tanks off again, and four hours more back to Kunming. The trouble was that on this night in January, the weather closed in at Chikyang and you couldn't land there. So you couldn't refuel. So my roommates all ran out of fuel before they got back to Kunming, which meant they all had to get in the jump sack and float down in the parachute. Most all of them got back. Only one mechanic was lost. In the, and, and we lost uh, three or maybe four, I, I don't remember for sure, 
but it was three for sure because my roommates were three of the airplanes that, that uh, bailed out. I was flying with another kid from the same room I was staying in at the barracks, and he was pretty sharp. And he got us, he was doing the, the flying on that back trip, and he got us into Kunming with 20 gallons of fuel in an airplane with two engines that burned something like 80 gallons an hour. <laughs> if he had messed up the landing at Kunming, we didn't have enough gas to go around and try again. <laughs> so that was a, maybe a close call. And we mentioned a little earlier about commanding general of the 14th Air Force. Now with General Claire Chenault, and General Chenault was an interesting fellow. He had been a, an Air Corps pilot after World War I, but he didn't get along with the brass. In fact, he often said that the Japanese didn't worry him. He could handle well. Washington was what worried him. <laughs> <laughs> Things haven't changed much, I guess. <laughs> but General Chenault was born in Commerce, Texas, and uh, raised in Louisiana. And he uh, was married, had a bunch of kids. Uh, I was trying to think of the, all the names of the kids. There was John, the oldest one, who flew in China, by the way. Flew P-38s in China. Max, uh, I'm not sure what Max did during the war. Claire Jr., who was a fighter pilot in Europe during the war. And Bob and David. And there was one daughter. And in my senility, I cannot remember her name. <laughs> but anyway, General Chenault went to China in 1937 at the request of... Uh, Madam Chiang, wife of the Generalissimo Chiang of China. And he uh, was involved in training these Chinese pilots and then got the idea of, of, of getting these experienced pilots out of the U.S. service and forming the American Volunteer Group. Now a little bit more about Chenault. While he was in the Air Corps, back in the late 20s and early 30s, he formed the first demonstration team that went around to county fairs and various gatherings and put on air shows. And he had a formation of three airplanes, himself and two wingmen. And they put on demonstrations like the Blue Angels do now. But this, this was called Three Men on a Flying Trapeze. <laughs> and, uh, and the two other fellows were a fellow, one named Possum Hansel. Oh, it takes me a while to come up with names every now and then. He was the CEO of my squadron in China, the, of that 14th Transport 322nd Troop Carrier, Luke Williamson. <laughs> Luke Williamson was an airline pilot after the war, and then the Chenault got him to go to China when he went over there in about 1937 or 38 or 9 to train the Chinese pilots. The uh, Russians, by the way, tried to get Chenault to uh, come work for them, too. He had been uh, instrumental in the early 
parachute drops, mass parachute drops. And they were interested in that. They tried to get him to come and work for them. Another one that flew in that three men on the trapeze was Billy McDonald. And he later flew the hump for what we called CNAC, C-N-A-C. And that was a subsidiary of Pan American Airways who flew the hump also in, in the C-47. But they were very, very experienced pilots. And they had a big CNAC on the side of the airplane. Now while, China, while Chenault was in China, he and his first wife divorced and he married a Chinese lady. Anna is her name and you may have heard of her in the news. She still lives in Washington and uh, New York. He met her because she was a newspaper correspondent for a Chinese newspaper. And uh, then they married in China and after the war they had two daughters. And it took me a while to come up with the names of the daughters last night. Uh, they would be probably graduating from college now. Uh, last time I saw them they were maybe junior high. Claire Anna was one, and the other one was uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Louise. Another thing that I didn't mention was when Chanel got to China, one of the first things he did was establish a countrywide air raid warning net. He had radio stations all through the interior, and some of them reported in by telephone, a lot of them by radio, and uh, when the Japanese took off from an airfield in eastern China back along the coast and headed for the interior to conduct an air raid, he often knew they were coming way ahead. In fact, uh, Christmas Eve 1944, we had a good one at Kunming. And of course we had, uh, had our fighters up in the air when they got there. I don't recall whether they got any shot down or not, but I remember them coming over the airfield. And uh, we had some, uh, another airplane flying in China called the Black Widow. It's a P-61. It was a two-seat fighter. And it was one of the first aircraft with radar in it. Radar was real new then. And that's why we could hide in the clouds. They didn't anybody come in looking for us. <laughs> now they come right in after you using radar. But uh, at that time, the only radar sets were on these P-61s. And one of the P-61s was on the tail of a Japanese aircraft back at one of the eastern bases, Sushuan, I think it was, one night in, in uh, early 1945. And he had the Japanese airplane on his radar site and was ready to shoot, and he momentarily lost him. But he came right back on and the guy fired. The problem was that what came back on was a wounded U.S. Air Force B-24 that had been on a raid and he shot down the B-24. He didn't know it until the navigator on the airplane walked into the base and reported it. So that was one of the sad things that happened. I mentioned earlier about preparing the food. Whenever I'd go somewhere as a little kid, as soon as 
I got home, my mother always had question number one. What did you have to eat? <laughs> well, in China, the uh, food, food service and the barracks, or we call them hostels, were all supplied by the Chinese government. And uh, we had an American mess sergeant in each mess hall who supervised the thing. But most of the help and, and the assistant cooks were all Chinese. So we ate a lot of Chinese food. Bean sprouts, and that's something I never see in a Chinese restaurant anymore. But we ate lots of bean sprouts. A lot of eggplant, uh, a lot of eggs, and I never figured out where the chickens came from because I don't remember seeing any chickens in China at all. And I mentioned this to a Chinese friend of mine and he said, they're duck eggs, <laughs> not chicken eggs. When you drive down a road in India, chickens were going everywhere. There were lots of chickens there, but I never, never saw any chickens in China. But now another story. Uh, I was down at Nanking. I've, I've forgotten why we went down there now, but anyway, there was a, a, a merchant with one of those poles they put across their shoulder and baskets hanging on each end. He was out there along the, the road that came to that airfield selling those little oranges. I thought they were tangerines, but they may have been mandarin oranges. They were small oranges anyway. So I went over to buy some. And at that time, the money in China, we used quite a bit of American money, but if you had Chinese money, it was different in different parts of China because the whole country had not been consolidated yet. And uh, the money that we used in one place was considerably different to that in another place, and the rates of exchange were different. But I had a a little $10 bill, Chinese $10 bill. The rate of exchange at that time was probably around somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 Chinese dollars for one American dollar. So that $10 bill was about the value of our money today. It was just a piece of paper. <laughs> I gave him that and indicated that I wanted some of the oranges. And he looked it over and called his buddies to come over and they all looked it over and talked and talked and talked about it. Finally, he picked up the pole that goes across his shoulder and the two baskets of fruit and handed me the whole thing. <laughs> I was in business. <laughs> I picked out the few that I wanted to take with me and gave them back to me and I'm sure he was absolutely amazed that I would pay him that much and then give him back the bulk of it. Another story about food happened at Hankow when we were moving the troops north. One day I was the mess officer. They'd take a, a pilot and the pilots were mostly all officers and assigned them as the mess officer. Your duties for that day were to go to the mess hall and make sure everything was working all right. So you really didn't have much to do, but just go down there and watch. I was the mess officer, and as I mentioned earlier about that explosion, a lot of the cooking was done outside behind the hangar in the open. 
and there was a fellow, this was at breakfast time I went down, and there was a Chinese fellow sitting on the ground, and he had baskets of eggs that he was breaking into a big pot. And uh, he was not too careful about it, and he was getting a lot of eggshell in there. And I tried to indicate to him that he shouldn't get that eggshell in there. And he finally caught on to what I wanted. <laughs> I wanted him to get the eggshell out of the eggs. So he turned around and he blew his nose and oh, started getting the eggshell out. Oh, God. Sick. <laughs> Another time on a mission, we flew to one of those eastern bases and had some engine trouble. We had one engine that wouldn't work right when we got ready to leave, which meant we would have to stay there until another airplane could bring some parts in. Well, we, it was not a regular, one of the regular bases we had ordinarily flown into where, where some f facilities were available. So I went to a colonel who was on the base, who had, this was just right after the Japanese surrender, and he was apparently there to take over the, the base from the Japanese. And I went to this colonel and told him that we had airplane trouble, would have to stay, was there any place that we could eat and sleep. His attitude was, the Air Force has been taking care of you long enough, why don't you look after yourself? And he said, by the way, I want you clean shaven tomorrow morning. Oh no, we were a long way from home and of course had not planned on staying overnight, so we didn't bring all of our toilet articles. I don't know where he expected us to get shaved, but the Japanese were still on the base, still armed, and so I, did, I came up with a blank on where to stay and what to eat. But on the way back to the airplane, I ran into an American major, and I told him the same sad story. <laughs> he said, well, why don't you come over and eat with my troops? I'm an advisor to some Chinese troops, and you can eat with us. So we went over there, and that night, they had a great, huge pot, like as big as a 55-gallon drum. As I recall, it was a, a cooking vessel, though, and, but it was that big. And they had it boiling, and you could walk over there and look in there, and you could see all these things boiling up through the water. And they gave you a bowl of rice and chopsticks, and you picked out what you wanted from the big boiling pot and put it on your rice. And that was your meal. Well, it looked like shrimp, so I put a bunch of those in there. They were pretty good. I thought they tasted real good, but somehow they didn't quite look right. So I went back and got some seconds and ate them, and later I asked this major, I said, uh, what were those in the meal that, that looked kind of like shrimp? They didn't quite look right, but they tasted like shrimp. They, they were all right, and he said, Oh, those are grub worms they dig out of the oh, riverbank. No. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> You're listening to the Independence Network. Uh, pick a topic. ZZ Top's Beards. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> when I was like 17, don't tell anybody this, but I had a thing for ZZ Top. 